0: But we are starting a new sermon series today in the book of Isaiah. I'd encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to flip to the book of Isaiah about halfway through. Um, We're going to be looking at the final chapters of the book of Isaiah, where he prophesies of this mysterious figure who goes by the title of the servant of the Lord you say, who is the servant of the Lord, the servant of Yahweh? Well, for us as Christians, you know, the cat's out of the bag. We already know. We, we're told repeatedly in the New Testament by the New Testament writers that Jesus Christ is the servant of the Lord. It kind of uh, maybe takes away the sense of surprise and anticipation when you already know, like, here's the guy. He's already been unveiled. Why, what usefulness is it for us to go back and look at a passage where we already know who it is. And here's why. There are things spoken about Jesus Christ in these last chapters of Isaiah that you can find really nowhere else in the rest of the Bible. There are things that are said about him or elaborated on about him that this is, this is the clearest you'll ever hear it, I thought, what better way for us to make our way towards Christmas and up through Advent, learning new things about Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to learn about his, <clears throat> his commitment for, to, toward uh, justice for the world's poor. Every one of us would agree that the world has a justice problem. But what you may not realize is that in order for us to really make inroads against global poverty something that we all agree is necessary. In order to do anything to that, you're not going to get anywhere without first addressing the justice problem. We're very well-meaning Western Democratic Americans. We, uh, we say, hey, we're going to go into an African village. We're going to d- dig a well in order to pr- provide clean, safe drinking water for that village. We're going to teach them sustainable farming techniques that will help increase their crop surplus But what we don't realize is that the number one thing the world's poor are worried about, are concerned about, is the daily predatory violence that they are subject to. The whole, give a man a fish, he eats for a day, teach a man to fish. The thing is, is that they are daily being subject to their fishing rod being stolen, if you're going to use the metaphor. I mean, there's no police protection. There's not, I mean, usually when you read the stories, you hear the accounts, the police are part of the problem. They're not the solution. And there's no court system that they're going to go to. No, the the world is crying out for justice. That's utterly missing from the world's poor. So what I hope to show you in Isaiah 42 this morning is how desperately we need the servant of the Lord to kind of work his magic, to show his, his power and his strength, and how we need some underservants of the servant to do the same. Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. Behold, here is my servant whom I strengthen. He is my chosen one in whom I delight. I have put my spirit upon him. You stop right there, verse 1. Are you hearing any echoes, similar words that are spoken in the New Testament? Hopefully, it draws to mind Jesus' baptism on the banks of the Jordan River. God says something very similar. Here is my chosen one in in whom I delight. I have put my spirit on him in the form of a dove. And and he will bring justice to the nations. Verse 2. He will not shout aloud or raise his voice in the streets. In other words, he won't be like so many of our world's leaders and our uh, candidates for the presidency of the United States of America. He will not be this loud, boastful, self-promoter kind of figure. He won't even raise his voice. He is going to achieve justice, but he's going to do it remarkably quietly self-effacingly. In fact, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, which gets quoted in Matthew chapter 12, verse 20. We'll come back to that in a minute. But he will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will not falter or be discouraged until justice prevails throughout the earth. Even the distant islands... That is, even the people who are in the extremities of the earth, even they will wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you, servant, to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, which we're going to talk about next week in the second servant song, Isaiah 49, because this theme gets repeated. But I have made you to be a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives that are in prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. Oh, no. See, the former things I prophesied have taken place. And new things I will now declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Let's jump right in to the first metaphor. And it's the metaphor, it's why we love this passage of the Bible. The metaphor of the bruised reed. It was on Tuesday that I dropped one of my daughters off at a class, an hour-long class that she was supposed to attend. And you parents know, when you're carting kids around everywhere and you only have an hour, that's not enough time to go back home and then come back. So I decided I was just going to walk, power walk through the neighborhood around the class for my hour. I'm headed down Franklin Boulevard, and I hang a right-hand turn on Locust Grove, and lo and behold, before my eyes, what do my eyes see but reeds? Reeds. I kid you not. I thought, Lord, you know the passage I'm preaching on this week. There are reeds in Boise, Idaho. We get 13 inches of annual precipitation a year. But it turns out that ACHD has a stormwater retention pond right on the corner of Franklin and Locust Grove. There are reeds. Uh, I'm, I was kind of surprised that there are hundreds of reeds. In pretty, I would imagine, uh, shallow standing water. What do you think the reeds represent in the metaphor there here in verse 3? The reeds represent people. I've never been to um, the Everglades before, but I bet you just stand there and you see not hundreds, thousands, thousands, But millions and millions of reeds. A reed forest is before your very eyes. And and that describes the people of the world. Just so, we're like one reed in a billion. Common, everyday, ordinary, stretching out uh, for miles and miles. Nothing distinguishable about these, us as reeds. We just feel so common. Well, there is one distinguishable characteristic, and that is Isaiah says that there are some bruised reeds. Oh, what is a bruised reed? In English, I got to think about this, English takes the word bruise, and it's a very weak English word. We say things like, um, oh, it was only a bruise. We get a bruise on our banana, and that doesn't stop anybody in my family from we're bananaholics, except for me. I don't do bananas. But you just cut, it, you cut out the bruise, and it, does, you, it takes you just a second. It doesn't destroy the pleasure at, at all. What is a bruised reed? Is a bruised reed kind of this plant that has a little bit of yellow discoloration on the side of it? Well, in Hebrew, the word for bruised here, it designates something that is not a minor injury. A bruised reed is most likely a reed that has been snapped and that's kind of hanging there at, at a 45-degree angle. A bruised reed has not been entirely severed from the, the reed trunk, which doesn't exist. <laughs> Reeds don't have trunks, do they? But it's not entirely severed. It's, it's holding there by a thread. There's some type of fibrous reed tissue that is holding but all of the connection the internal tubing that connects that reed with the vitality of the plant and the stem pretty much all of that has been severed and we would use the adage that it's it's just hanging by a thread and that's that describes some people doesn't it then the next image we have the the second metaphor here is the metaphor of the smoldering candle the smoldering wick. When you think of a smoldering candle, what do smoldering candles normally produce in abundance? They don't produce a whole lot of light, they produce a whole lot of smoke, yes. And you're, just <coughs> you're choking on this stinking candle that's not providing any light whatsoever. You're just choking on the smoke. It's not doing what it's supposed to, it's good for nothing. A smoldering wick is a smoldering candle. is is not good for anything. It's kind of like a light bulb that's on the fritz, and it starts quivering and shaking. It's not providing consistent light. It's you're you're trying to read your Bible or read your book underneath a strobe light. That's what it feels like, and it just—it's frustrating. It's useless. It's good for nothing. Just throw it in the trash. So I think it's such an evocative image that God gives us here. A bruised reed is just an everyday common person who feels like they have been snapped on the inside. Somebody, Anybody who has felt like they've been snapped in the middle, I know that it's never happened to you, right? (laughs) If you feel like you're snapped in the middle and you're barely holding on to life and you feel like, you're utterly useless. You're good for nothing, worthless, and useless. What this servant says is he will not come and lick his fingers and pinch you out. So gentle and concerned is this servant for your weakness that when he walks through the marshlands, as he's taking his steps, he's doing so ever so carefully that he promises not to brush up against you and break you off. Do you know anybody who, who who feels like that? Who needs to hear a, a message like this? I want you to get that person in your mind right now. Um, and there's probably more than one. But who is that person who needs to hear that like 2,700 years ago, God was talking about them? And He, God's son was what's talking about and, and thinking about them. Um, Bruised reeds, smoldering wicks, people that are on the verge of extinction, people who've, who've really, frankly, lost a will to live. Uh, think about people who suffer from chronic pain. Have any of, any of you gone through that before? I mean, chronic pain just sucks every last bit of energy. I, you're like, I don't want to live anymore. You think of people who have gone through a terrible divorce, that sucks everything out of you. Uh, somebody, people who have spent a long time in the unemployment line. People who, um, oh, we could go on and on and on. But I, I guarantee you that if you don't feel this way, there is somebody in your world that needs to hear that the servant of the Lord came for someone like them. That's the people that he came for. Let's jump on to verse 4, the justice that he brings. Because essentially, you know, Jesus is talking about this, and he's talk, it does apply to us as 21st century Americans, but it really applies to 21st century Nairobians, Kenyans who are in the slums of Nairobi, kids who are growing up on the streets, in China, thanks be to God that one chi- one-child policy is over. Right? Thanks be to God for that act of justice. He he verse. So he says, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. But he will bring justice to all who have been wronged. He will be. He will not falter or be discouraged until justice prevails throughout the earth, even the distant islands. We'll wait for his law. This servant is passionately committed to justice. Now, let me give you a picture of it. We, I came across, I think is the perfect picture of the servant of the Lord. And it was in the August edition of the MAF Mission Aviation Fellowship newsletter. Anybody get MAF's newsletter? A few people. You know, they're based out of Nampa, Great organization. I probably, I've talked a lot about it in the past, but here's the it's, it is an image. There's an actual picture in there, and it captures it perfectly. It's a picture of this white, almost barbarian looking giant guy, six foot two, 300 pounds, beard down to his sternum, just hulking man, and he's being hugged by this itty bitty five foot one. Weathered-looking African, you know the picture. The weathered-looking, Af- weathered-looking African woman It's just holding on to him. So the story is, cut to the chase. He was an MMA fighter in Texas. He won several state championships as an MMA. He w- he ended up competing on I think the Ultimate Fighter Championship uh, season ten or something like that. Big, powerful guy. He comes to faith in Jesus in 2010, and he ends up taking a missionary trip to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And there in the, the DRC, one of the worst places to be in the world, there in the eastern rainforests and jungles of the Congo, he meets the pygmies. That little lady, she's actually a pygmy. Tiny, and it just as it, it, everything that that word conjures up in your mind, that's That's her and that's them. I mean, absolutely the most vulnerable, weak, little people in the world. It so happens that the pygmy, uh, they had their ancestral lands stolen from them by the Congolese majority, the Makpala. And and now they're basically, they're, they're slaves. So the story on this little lady is she would, her daily job for the Makpala is to carry a 120-pound charcoal bag on her back that's attached to her body with, and I don't even understand how you do this, but a a strap that's across her forehead. She's kind of trudging along like that for three, four, five miles through African rainforests and jungles in order to receive at the end of the day, you know what her wage is? You know how well they pay, pay them in the DRC? Two little minnows. What ends up happening is the MMA fighter, he moves in with the pygmies. (laughs) He he comes, like, look who's moved to the neighborhood now. (laughs) This is going to go better for us, won't it? He had come to bring justice. You and I, when we think of that Hebrew word, we don't think of it as a Hebrew word, it's mishpat. When we think of justice, we think of it, almost entirely in terms of retributive or rectifying justice. Paying back evildoers for their evil deeds. Somebody breaks the law, there's some violation, make sure that the case is judged on the merits of the case and not on the basis of of race or economic status, and make sure that whatever penalty is, whatever punishment is uh, determined, that that needs to be consistent. Two people commit the same crime, they should get the same punishment. We think of it, if you do those things, then, hey, you got justice. We think of it entirely as retributive justice. But don't, I mean, that retributive justice doesn't um, bring a murdered child back to life, does it? Because the real justice we need in this world is not mere retribution. It is protection. Protection against, for them, predatory violence. I need somebody, I need a Thor-like character to come in and move into my village because I'm a pygmy, and I need some protection. So here you have, she's holding on to him, and that's the picture of the servant of the Lord. That is the picture of what he came to do. That is what we need him to do a whole lot more in this world. I thought, so you always, as a pastor, you try to figure out what would be a good outcome on your sermon on Sunday morning, and a good outcome for this sermon would be if I could get you to just long for the servant of the Lord to come, and if he doesn't come back tomorrow, then at least he would send out a few little underservants, undershepherds out into the world to take care of people like this. If you long for that, if you pray for that, if you hunger for that, that's a, that's a sermon win. Today, So the book that I've been reading, uh, it's called The Locust Effect. It is written by Gary Hagen, the president and founder of the International Justice Mission, The Locust Effect, Why the End of Poverty Requires the End of Violence. He says, if you're reading this book in a state of relatively uh, reasonable security and peace without fear of being enslaved or imprisoned, beaten, raped, or robbed, it's, it's either the case that you're living a long ways away from everybody else in a place of isolation, far away from other human beings, or you are the beneficiary of a system that is protecting you from the violent impulses of, of all the human beings that are around you. And most of the people, the world's poor, are not beneficiaries, obviously, of, of such a system, The image that they they used in the book is the image that they used for the title. In 1875, a plague of locusts descended upon the Midwestern part of the United States, and they ate up everything. 200,000 square acres were devoured, leaving animal and people to die of starvation afterward. But the few people that were alive afterwards, people came to kind of cheer them up and encourage them, hey, the government's going to come in, and we're going to provide some economic assistance programs, and, oh, the churches will come in, and we'll provide some good humanitarian relief efforts. And the people who survived the, the locust plague of 1875 s- said, you know, when we hear that, it does almost like you're mocking us. It feels like you're mocking us. Because what good does it do to talk to me about economic or humanitarian relief efforts if you're not going to do anything about the locusts while they're still here? And that's the image that they use in in the book. Try all that you want to combat and tackle extreme global poverty, but if you don't do anything with the bullies, here goes. The fight against global poverty is probably the longest-running manifestation of human compassion in the history of the world. So why is it that there are billions of people still stuck in such harsh poverty? You can give all... Here's the answer. You can give all manner of goods and services to the poor, but if you don't restrain the violent bullies from taking it away, you ain't getting anywhere. That struck me. I, I just don't think about justice in those terms. Do you? Is it, do you think about Jesus in those terms? Like, he's that committed to, to doing that kind of stuff? As I said earlier, we are, we're, we're totally well-intentioned when we try to do humanitarian efforts. For instance, like, there's a lot of organizations that try to construct schools for girls to be educated at because we know that the global poor, especially girls, I mean, they're illiterate, they don't get taught. But what we don't realize is that most girls in that situation, they don't want to go to a school. You know why? Because that's the number one place that you're going to be raped. One in five women in the world are either the victims of rape or the victims of an attempted rape. And, so, and do you know, this is what's so galling, that if you have a little girl who is raped, what's the percent likelihood that her attacker is going to be brought to justice? Pretty much a big, fat goose egg because all it takes is a little well-placed bribe right here for the police department. All it takes is a little well-placed bribe to the judge. The justice there's some incredible st- stories in this book. You've got okay, I'll go fast. There's this uh, boy in Nairobi in the slums and he's accused by some guy of theft. The the jail term for theft in In Nairobi is something like 30 years. You get arrested because you're accused and you can't even get out of jail until they hold your court case. But your court case, you don't even get your day in court until 18 to 24 months after you've been. So all it takes is somebody to accuse you and you're in a Nairobian jail for 24 months until you get to the courtroom and you find out that You don't have money for a lawyer. And you don't speak the language that they're going to conduct the case in. And you're looking at 30 years. There's just so many powerful examples of that. We desperately need the servant of the Lord. And we desperately need to call upon the servant of the Lord to to make good on the promise that he has in verse 4. He says that he will not falter or be discouraged until justice prevails throughout the earth. We've got to call upon the servant of the Lord. Come on, Lord, do that. Do that. Isaiah is a very difficult book to understand. You get if you start in January, you read through the Bible program in a year, by the time you get through Leviticus, you've probably stopped. But if you made it through Leviticus, you're dead on arrival in Isaiah. It's either the longest or the second longest book in the Bible. And you've got all these difficult to understand oracles, prophetic oracles of judgment and doom, all of that in a different language to a people that lived 2,700 years ago. No wonder we get confused. But did you know the number one factor that confuses us when we read Old Testament prophecy is this? It's that I can't see the ridgelines of the mountain that I'm looking at. Let me explain. So there I am standing at my front yard in Meridian. I look up to the Boise Mountains, and all I see is just one unified, flat hole. I I can't see the ridgelines. I know that Schaefer Butte is up there, and Schaefer Butte is separated from Brogus Basin, you know, the ski resort, by a pretty large valley, and it, but I, I can't see it. It all just blends into to one. Does that make sense? You can't see the ridgeline. You just see the, the blob, and that, friends, is how prophecy works. They blobbed us. <laughs> the Lord blobbed us when he, he wrote it in such a way. It, like, there's nobody who read the book of Isaiah who would have understood that at first the servant of the Lord would come to atone for sin, then he would leave for a couple thousand years or a few thousand years. And then he will come back to to do the really dirty hard work on establishing justice in the final judgment. Like nobody read it that way. And that's one of the reasons why it's so hard for us is you've got a moment where you know, it seems like you're talking about the cross. And the next moment we're talking about the final judgment. And it's all convoluted and Nobody, nobody reading Isaiah would have ever have imagined that this is how God would do it. Nope. Nobody would have imagined either that a God who so loves justice would allow such a miscarriage of justice to take place with the servant of the Lord. You know what I'm talking about? You get ahead to the, next, to the later servant songs, you go, you, so many times the Bible says God loves justice he, and he establishes righteousness over and over. But then you get to the servant of the Lord in 53 and you discover that this, the servant is, is the greatest victim of injustice. And have you ever thought about this before? That Jesus' murderers, not a single one of them was ever brought to trial? Like those guys, they got to grow old and, you know die comfortably in their beds at the age of 75 after they had just had a party with the grandchildren. They did Halloween together with them or something. I mean, they got to grow old and kind of lit, die a very peaceful death. Not a single one of the servant of the Lord's murderers were ever brought to justice. And, and that's confusing. The fact that you get, a, we call it prophetic telescoping, that's part of Isaiah that's confusing. And then the strange way that God deals with justice that's confusing. Final thing, right here. Um. <clears throat> I'm going to have your, the kids' attention. This is sort of a, a throwback to Halloween. Uh, I watched a lot of Scooby-Doo episodes as a kid. We have any Scooby-Doo fans? <laughs> yeah, lots of adults. We, I mean, I watched pretty much every Scooby-Doo episode of the original series two and three times. One of the favorite plot lines of the original episode the the kids would be, they'd walk into a haunted amusement park, and they'd go into a big tent, and inside they would have their fortune told. Who would be sitting at the fortune reader's table in front of the crystal ball? Kind this weird, scary-looking, gypsy witch lady. And who of the kids in Scooby-Doo would or the characters in Scooby-Doo, would the gypsy lady ask to sit down at the table and read their fortune? Shaggy or Scooby? Always. Because <laughs> if they were to ask Fred, Vilma, or Daphne, Fred, they don't understand. This is a ruse. They're trying to scare us off. But uh, you know, Scooby and Shaggy are terrified when she starts to, uh, she starts to, oh, I see terrible things in your future. <laughs> And they just want to run. They're scared. When, when you're told about terrible things that are going to happen to you in your future, you're going to run. So there was this boy, 12-year-old Jewish boy, who went to synagogue every Saturday with his family, very you know, religiously devout Jewish family. And one of the favorite readings of Torah that would take place in the synagogue, they would unroll the Isaiah scroll. Every Jew, when they came to the end of Isaiah, was, was wondering, who is this servant of the Lord? This terrible things are spoken about him. He's going to be mocked, rejected. They're going to pluck out his beard. They're going to hack him, hack his back. Imagine what it was like for that 12-year-old boy to be asking the question, who is who is it that's being talked about here? Now, I don't know how it happened. I don't know if it was a little voice that was speaking, you know, in the back of his brain. I don't know if it was his conscience saying, but you and I know that that 12 little boy was wrestling with a question. I think Isaiah's talking about me. I think he's talking about me. Like what would it have been like for Jesus Christ to hear the end of Isaiah being read, and to realize that it is describing his duty and mission in this world, I can't. I can't imagine it. It's even the only thing that's more remarkable is that when the servant of the Lord finds out that that he's going to help the bruised by being bruised, that he's going to save the wicks by himself being extinguished. The only thing that makes us shake our heads and wonder as we come to the Lord's table, is why didn't he run? (laughs) Why didn't he run? All right, amen.